Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and far more enjoyable if you follow along in a copy of God's Word. If you did not bring a copy of God's Word with you, you should be able to find John 4 on page 888 of the Bible provided underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Uh, we'd love for you to open that up and read along with us. And if you don't have a copy at home, please feel free to just take that home with you. Consider that a gift from us to you today. As you're turning to John 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a few moments. I just want to situate us again where we are in this section of, of John. and the opening verses of John's gospel, he tells us that Jesus is the eternal word of God made flesh. And then at the end of chapter 1, he gives all of these illustrious titles describing Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. The true rabbi, the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. And then he tells us that Jewish religious institutions like marriage and the temple point to him. But at the end of chapter 2, John writes this enigmatic statement that we often pass over in John 2, verses 23 and through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Before he begins to introduce us to a series of people, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 Someone that everyone would have thought would have been on the inside of God's redemptive plan. But John teaches us, at least at this point in his gospel narrative, is on the outside looking in. Then John the Baptist, the final prophet of the Old Covenant, who we studied last time in chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. And John rejoices, even though he's the final prophet and significant, bringing all things to pass as he points to Christ. Because he understood that he has a part to play. And everything is about Jesus. And now the Samaritan woman, an inbred Jew, a half-Gentile, someone that everybody would have thought is on the outside looking in. But John teaches us is on her way to becoming an insider in God's kingdom. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do, we get, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And Father, we ask that you would help us to pay attention to it now in this time as we study it. Father, we know that as we come to your word, we need you to, by your supernatural spirit, reveal to us the precious truths that are revealed into it. So we ask, Father, that you would do that now, that you would reveal to us wonderful things from your word. I pray for all the believers who are present that you would drive them into deeper repentance and deeper faith, even myself. And Father, I pray for those who are here who are not yet Christians, that you would be merciful to do the good work of redeeming grace and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. John 4 teaches us that Jesus came for a specific purpose. Jesus came to save sinners. And as we'll see, Jesus pursues sinners with amazing blessings. And that is what is so special about this story. Because it teaches us what many of us think but would never actually verbalize. That Jesus saves people many of us would write off. People that many of us would write off as being too far gone to be a recipient of God's grace. You see, without John 4, as we're reading through his gospel narrative, we might be prone to think at this point that Jesus only came to save people who are law-abiding citizens, like Nicodemus, or faithful, like John the Baptist. But when we come to John 4, we see that he was on a mission to do good and to speak the word of God to all people, even far-gone people, that they might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life in his name. 
And on this particular occasion, the place of his proclamation was in Samaria. The situation was critical. Verse 1, Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard about him and his work. So verse 3, to avoid their investigation of him and his now expanding ministry, and because his hour had not yet come, he left Judea for his home in Galilee. And as he made his way home, there would have been a defined and a very acceptable path for any Jew traveling from the southern province of Judea to the northern province of Galilee. But not the one that all of us in the room might think. We think that the best route is the one that is the straightest path because it is always the shortest trip. But not Jews in Jesus' day. Because no self-respecting Jew would dare pass through Samaria. It was off limits for everybody. They would cross the Jordan River into Perea. And then they would travel north along the river. Only to cross the river again into Lower Galilee. All to avoid the people in the middle. The Samaritans. But John says, verse 4. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Friends, in John's gospel, Jesus doesn't even go home without a purpose. He had to pass through Samaria. But the most startling thing about this information in John's gospel is that Jesus' travel itinerary does not shock us in the 21st century. The mention of Samaria does not carry any negative overtones for us because we all remember the Good Samaritan. But that was not the case for the Jews in Jesus' day. The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans had existed for centuries. It was palpable. It was intense. Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. And yet, John tells us, the agenda for the king of the Jews on this day was to pass through Samaria because he had someone to meet. He had a divine appointment. And so, verse 5, every step is calculated. Jesus made his way into Samaria. And he came to a particular town called Sychar, near Jacob's well, A very famous place known far and wide as a refuge for outcasts. And at this very significant place, on this particular day, at this particular time, the sixth hour, around noon, Jesus comes to this particular field and sits down beside this particular well. Verse 5. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was the hottest part of the day, around noon. And a well of water would be just the place that you would want to be on a day like that, like a pool on a hot and humid summer day. And John tells us that God was doing what no one would have ever dreamed that God was about to do. God was doing something wonderful in a scandalous woman's life because Jesus pursues sinners with amazing blessings. Five points will frame our time together this morning. A divine appointment, a divine rebuke, a divine instruction, a divine confrontation, and a divine encounter. Notice first, a divine appointment. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. As Jesus sits in the baking sun, a woman from Samaria just so happens to come to draw water. Unusual activity for any first century woman because water was not usually drawn at midday. It was drawn early in the morning before the oppressive heat of the day. So something was informing her actions for her to come out at the most hot part of the day. What is the reason? Let's keep reading. She comes, verse 7, to draw water and Jesus speaks directly to her. She does not receive a greeting from Jesus. 
Jesus does not come up and introduce himself. He initiates the conversation by a request. He says, verse 7, give me a drink. An example for us of Jesus' physical need as a human. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is man. The Lord Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man who, like all human beings, needs water and food to survive. Which is why the Bible says in verse 8, the disciples had gone into town to get food. Thirsty and hungry, Jesus meets this woman at the well all alone. Just like you must meet Jesus all alone. We gather as a congregation each and every week, but each and every individual in this room must meet Jesus alone and personally place their faith in him. You're not a Christian because you're here or because your parents are Christians or because you're members of an evangelical church or because you've gone on a mission trip and done things for Jesus. It was just Jesus and this woman at the well and his request receives an interesting and telling response from her. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Shocked that a Jewish man would be speaking to her, a woman, a woman, as the text emphasizes, of Samaria. John reveals how significant and strange it was for Jesus to speak directly to her, let alone ask her for something. It was unheard of in Jewish history at the time. A woman of Samaria would have been regarded as someone with no real value, and speaking to a woman in public that you did not know and was not your wife was inappropriate. And she's aware of the impropriety. Notice what she says. She recognizes the racial and ethnic and sexual barriers between them. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. She's a woman. He's a man. She's from one people. He's from another people. Gender, race, ethnicity had segregated the entire population of the region. Friends, segregation is nothing new. But it is still sinful. And Jesus aims to break that barrier. And if you have any doubt about how vicious and downright mean the segregation of the Jews and the Samaritans was, the text tells us everything that we need to know in a parenthetical comment, verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The phrase indicates hatred. It was separation by choice. It's discrimination by design. They detested each other. They were taught to loathe each other. They lived to revile each other because of their ethnic origin and their history. And if you want to learn more about that, go read 2 Kings 17 this afternoon. After the separation of the northern Israelite tribes from Judah and Benjamin in the south, the Assyrians historically came in and they conquered and they exiled the ten tribes. But wise conquerors that they were, they left some Jews and resettled the majority of the land with people who were not from the land, who married and mixed the races, and later became known as the Samaritans. A people who would kind of feel a right to the, Judea, the Jews' promises and covenants and all of their forms of worship, but who also had their own religious rituals. And as you can imagine, in the ancient world, none of that went over very well. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. And one of the ways that they would punish each other was by refusing interaction with each other at every single level of life. Educationally, economically, geographically, socially. A Jew would never be caught dead in Samaria. Let alone asking a Samaritan woman for a cup of water to live. 
But Jesus did both of those things as he pursued this sinner with amazing blessings. That he made the first step toward this Samaritan woman is instructive towards us. And if you say that you follow this Jesus, you will do as he did. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ must not allow racial or ethnic or gender barriers to hide, conflate, obscure, or refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who is not like us. Because in the economy of God, those boundaries do not exist. Friends, we are on dangerous grounds when under the guise of patriotism, we're really soft on racism. The gospel of Jesus Christ knows nothing of it. Nothing of racial or ethnic or gender-specific boundaries that put people in neat buckets so that we can alienate them from us so that we don't have to be around them. There's nothing in the gospel that prevents someone from entering into God's kingdom because of racial or ethnic or gender boundaries. And there's nothing in the gospel that prevents those people from admittance into the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a sin then. It's a sin now. And Jesus' conversation with this woman is a step toward breaking down those barriers. Because Jesus pursues all kinds of sinners with amazing blessings. A divine appointment. Notice second, a divine rebuke. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus doesn't allow the overt racism to stand. He doesn't travel around like everybody else. He cuts right through and walks straight to the woman. And then he begins to correct her thinking immediately. He quickly moves the conversation from, to spiritual matters. He said to her clearly that she does not know the truth. He says to her clearly that though she thinks she understands, she actually doesn't understand at all. And at this point in her life, she remains in darkness. She has no clue about the truth of God. And Jesus loves her enough to tell her so. Friends, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most loving things that you can do for your non-Christian family and friends is tell them the truth. And the holiday season is a season like none other in the year where you have the opportunity to tell them the truth that they don't really understand. And what they live for and long for and pine for and yearn for and hope in is not the truth. Jesus Christ loved her enough to tell her the truth that she didn't understand even when she thought she understood. Jesus says, verse 10, that she does not understand the gift of God. And what was Jacob's well to begin with? A gift from God. A provision for Jacob and Joseph and his lineage from God. But this woman had been so trained to hate Jews and to keep the barrier erected between them high, that she does not understand that to give water to a thirsty man was an imperative for anyone claiming to understand the gift of God because she did not understand the gift of God herself. This is why Jesus said in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She does not understand the gift of God, so she misunderstands Jesus. She thinks that he's speaking of water in the well, water that he has no access to at all because he does not have the right equipment there to draw the water. The woman says, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Friends, apart from divine mercy, 
and the Spirit of God changing the heart of men and women to believe the words of Jesus Christ, they remain blind, unable to understand the gift of God. It's not how persuasive you are or how charismatic you are or how many apologetic arguments you understand or how right you are and how wrong they are. Apart from God's intervening grace, they are unable to understand the identity of the Son of God. So she comes and misunderstands Jesus and mockingly asks, verse 12, if he is greater than the one who dug the well. Are you greater than our father Jacob? If she could see with the divine perspective, she would do as Jesus said that she would do. She would come to Jesus and she would ask him for water. Not just the compound of water, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, because the element of water symbolizes something greater here in John's gospel. Notice what Jesus says, verse 10. It's living water. Careful Bible readers remember the prophet Jeremiah at this point, where Jeremiah speaks of this same phrase that Jesus is using. If you're taking notes, just write down Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Jeremiah says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah's prophecy is an indictment against the children of Israel who had forsaken God. God who is called the fountain of living waters as they tried to provide for themselves, making cisterns or wells of water for themselves. Cisterns and wells that God says were broken from the start. And that is why Jesus is telling this woman that she needs living water. Because as an outcast from the people of Israel, the very same actions are being repeated over and over again. As God's people forsook God to build for themselves paths of salvation that were broken from the start. Only God can give living water. Only God can give eternal life. Only God can sustain, sustain someone uh, out of death. Only God can save a sinner. Only God can make the blind see. Only God can make the deaf hear. And only God can overcome her unbelief now that causes her to ask. Verse 11. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Her response to Jesus reveals her heart. It's obvious that she's interested in the conversation with Jesus, but she's not yet understood their truth. Just like some of us here this morning. Friends, it's possible to be interested in the words of Jesus, but not really believe. You're capable of hearing, but not really understanding. It's possible to sing, but not believe what you're confessing. So she begins to reason from what she knows as she asks critical questions of Jesus that attempt to divert the conversation away from what she doesn't want to talk about, her own spiritual state. And the text seems to indicate that she has a bit of an attitude while doing so. She asks, who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? Don't you understand anything about our history? Do you even know where you are? For this woman, Jacob was her savior. He gave the well, and he drank from it, and so does all of his sons and lineage, and now so does she. How could Jesus be so uninformed? Friends, this is the response of everyone who hears the words of Jesus confronting them, but just continues to persist in darkness. Who are you? And why are you allowed to tell me to do what I don't want to do? Who are you? And why are you allowed to say anything to me at all? 
I know that you seem important, but I don't want any of that. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we're all blind just like this woman, though the truth is hidden in plain sight. I wonder, friends, if you're here this morning and you have ideas and thoughts, words and beliefs that seem to bring a defense or a justification against repentance and trusting in Jesus. It was obvious this woman did not understand the well in Jacob or the gift of God and the plan of God. She had been conditioned to think poorly. She knew some facts, but she did not know the truth. She did not know that Jesus pursues sinners with such amazing blessings. A divine appointment, a divine rebuke. Notice third, a divine instruction. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus moves from her individual state to a broad statement about God and salvation as he clarifies what he meant by contrasting the water in the well with the living water that he alone offers. Those who drink from the water in the well will thirst again, but those who drink from the living waters will never thirst again. The water Jesus offers quenches the deepest thirst of the human soul, and the contrast could not be greater. Jesus does not just give water. He gives living water. It's not stagnant. It's vibrant. It's not polluted. It's pure. It's not scarce. It's abundant. It's not unsatisfying. It's satisfying. It's not dead. It's living. Most people spend their whole lives seeking one person or one career or one achievement or one thing that will quench the thirst of their soul. Some even seek it in the good things of life, family, friends, food, careers, education, opportunity, money. But none of those things were ever intended to fill the longing of your soul. Only the living water that Jesus offers can do that. Friends, if you want to thirst again, drink from the well that the world has to offer. But if you want your thirst satisfied, drink deeply from the water that Christ freely gives. John tells us that this woman sought to fill her longing with relationships and not a single one of them satisfied. And now her heart is dry and her soul is parched and all she has to show for all of her sexual escapades is her own loneliness and shame. At the well, all alone, with Jesus, in the heat of the day, with nobody else. So Jesus says to her, All who drank the water that the world has to offer will be thirsty again because earthly provisions never satisfy. They never satisfy because this earth abides under God's curse. Work will always be difficult. That's not new in the 21st century. Resources will always be scarce. That didn't happen this year when inflation got difficult. Nothing will last. That was not just what you bought last year for Christmas. Time is always fleeting and people never have enough. Labor is erased with death. People are forgotten. And life cannot be sustained because ultimately human beings have no way to protect themselves from sickness and disease. You are all a needy and dependent people. And the fact that you have continual thirst points to your own fragility and weakness. It reminds you that you are needy. It reminds you that you need water. You need living water. Without water, you will die. 
And very soon after this service, no matter how much you don't like water and prefer Coke, you will have more water. You need some again very soon because your life and my life is as a creature dependent on the elements and the resources outside of ourselves to survive. And all of this is because of sin's presence in us and all around us in the world that we live. So when Jesus tells her that a drink of water from this well is only a temporary measure of provision, he is saying that she can never meet her ultimate need. And then he begins to contrast her sinful state with his divine provision. She's never able going to be able to satisfy herself. Friends, you're never going to make it. You're going to stall out at every point or at some point in your life. So you need to see what Jesus provides that you can't earn for yourself. He says, verse 14, The water I will give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice the progression for Jesus. He will give individuals water personally. He will give provision for life that will enable them to live. It is from Jesus to an individual. Jesus says that he will give it to others. And what is the water that he gives? It is nothing less than eternal life. It is a gift from Jesus to an individual based on nothing in them that they were able to do for themselves. They have nothing to give and they have nothing to do with the gift. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, they contribute nothing to their salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Jesus says clearly, I will give because this is how salvation comes to an individual in John's gospel. Not through their work, not through their merit, not because they know the law, not because they are law abiding, not through their intellect, not through their effort, not through their race, not through their money, not through their lineage. You can do nothing to receive the gift of God. That Jesus offers to people freely. But notice the woman's response to the announcement of salvation and good news. You would think that she, just like everybody here, would be so excited. But it's quite disappointing when we pay close attention to how she still doesn't understand. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water at the place of my shame again. It's hard to know if she's sincere or sarcastic. Regardless, she's looking for a way to dodge the obvious issue in her life while still getting what she wants. But in order for her to be given the living water that Jesus offers, she has to be confronted with her sin so that she can see for herself that Jesus pursues sinners with amazing blessings. A divine appointment, a divine rebuke, a divine instruction. Notice fourth, the divine confrontation. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. His response to her request for the living water is instructive to us. She wanted the water. She wants the life. She wants the blessing. She wants to live. She doesn't want shame. She doesn't want public embarrassment. Jesus just sidesteps what she wants and goes right to the heart of the issue. She wants a temporary fix, but Jesus doesn't deal with people in temporary fixes. Jesus isn't here to make your life a little bit better for 80 years. Jesus is here to change your life for all of eternity. Jesus isn't trying to manage the disaster of your sin. 
Jesus is trying to forgive you of your sins so that you would have eternal life. So he sidesteps her evasion. He says, we're not going to talk about that as she tries to get the waters of life without price. Because everything that she pined for, anything, something, someone, had to be better than what she currently had. But notice what Jesus says, verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. I want the water. Go call your husband. Jesus says, bring him to me. We have no record of Jesus meeting her. We don't know how Jesus would know anything about her because of a previous meeting. How is it possible that this Jesus would know something about the details of her life? It's an example of his omniscience. He is the divine Christ. Though he is truly man and needs water and bread, he is also truly God. And as such, he knows everything about everyone. Remember what John has already taught us. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew her, just like he knows you. He knew this woman. He knew what she had done, just like he knows you. And he knows what you have done. In order for you to receive the gift of God's salvation, you can be sure that Jesus will confront you in your sin, just like he confronted this woman in her sin. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Clever woman. More like her father Jacob, the deceiver, than she realizes. She's not lying. She's just not telling the whole truth. Just like some of us here this morning. We're not lying when we talk to our accountability partners and friends. We're just not telling them the whole truth. Because we love our sin. And we want to protect our sin. And we want to protect ourselves from the consequences of our sin. She's not lying. She's just not telling the whole truth. And Jesus once again responds around her. Verse 17. You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And you can just imagine the astonishment. Trying to sidestep Jesus. And Jesus just pulls back the curtain and says, I know who you are. I know why you're here in the middle of the day. I know what you've done. And I know who you've done it with. I know everything about you. Jesus knocks down the defensive barrier that she erects. He goes right to the heart of the issue, and he tells her, you've broken the sixth commandment over and over and over and over and over again. And now she's given up on even trying to live faithfully with it. So she's living in a sexual union with a man that's not her husband, and he knew it. He knew what she said was the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth. Brothers and sisters... What half-truth are you trying to tell God today? We cannot pass this text in our culture if we don't realize how dangerous and deceptive our sin and even sins of sex and sexuality really are. When we minimize marriage and maximize sex, we are well on our way to disaster. It's the foundation of so much brokenness in our world. From the hookup culture that's present all in our community and on the campus a few blocks from here, we see that human sexuality is complex and powerful and dangerous. It's true in the 21st century. It was true in the 1st century because it is one of the most clarifying expressions about who you really are and what you really want out of life and what you love. 
sexual desire is a fire. And its passions lead us astray. And they deceive us into thinking that we can lie and not tell the whole truth and not be known and get away with it. They blind us to the truth, but they must be confronted. Because only when we're confronted with deviant behaviors of sin and how they run contrary to God's law, can we actually receive the healing and the restoration and the forgiveness that Jesus wants to bring. Jesus wants to forgive you more than you want to be forgiven. And he wants to heal you more deeply than you feel that you need to be healed. Jesus knew this woman's sexual habits. He knew that they had resulted in immoral acts. He knew that they had resulted in public shame. He knew that it resulted in communal embarrassment. He knew that there was an unwillingness in her heart to get to the heart of the issue. But friends, Jesus will never excuse unrepentant sexual sin. And if you're here today struggling with sexual sin, you're not alone. This woman is evidence that Jesus knows, understands, and loves people enough who are struggling with that type of sin to confront them in their sins and call them out from it so that they might receive the love and forgiveness that God offers. Because one of the defining marks of Christianity is that their sex and sexuality conform to the revealed word of God, not to commit adultery, not to fornicate, not to hook up for casual sex, but to preserve that for intimacy and marriage between one man and one woman. And just as an aside, if you're single here today, just let me take this as an opportunity to say to you, we come to testimonies like this and we think, man, I really wish I could live a life like that, get all the pleasure that I want, and then be saved by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, if you're living a single and chaste life, you're not missing out on anything. You're not going to get to heaven and say, if I would have had more sex, I would enjoy heaven more. You're not missing out on anything. You can receive the fullness of all that God has promised. Apart from the world, what the world tells you, you must have and satiate. Notice how the woman responds to Jesus' confrontation. Verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Again, she evades. She does not want to have this conversation with Jesus. But she recognized that there was something different about this Jesus. Something was different about this man. But instead of responding directly to him, her defenses were in place. She had practiced this conversation. She had had this type of argument before. She's quick to introduce a new religious topic of controversy to direct the attention all the way from herself. Let's talk about worship on the mountain. Proper place. The Jews and Samaritans had been debating. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's an odd response when Jesus has pointed out all of the glaring sins in her life. But it's the pattern that people follow instinctively. None of us like to be told that we're wrong. None of us want to be told that we're sinning. None of us want our sin exposed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us want to build a case for why we are right to live the way that we are living without repentance and how we can have the living water without turning away from that. So what do we do? The very same types of things that she did. We retreat to safety behind arguments that we have rehearsed over time. I'm not drinking too much. I'm just enjoying the good things in life. I'm not immoral. We're planning to get married. I'm not an angry person. I'm just passionate. I'm not racist, but I cannot ignore the statistics. My appearance is not an idol. I just like to take care of my body. I don't lack self-control. 
I just care too much. I'm not lazy. I just don't care like you care. When we look at other people, it's always easy for us, isn't it? There's right and there's wrong. But when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we always want to say, well, if you only understood my situation, what's different about me, then you would understand why it's okay for me to be this way. And just like this woman, we are willing to have any number of theological discussions with Jesus or pastors and friends or colleagues and co-workers as long as we are not confronted about our sin. But like her, our theology betrays us. She's looking for a way to dodge the obvious issues in her life. She avoided repentance in the conversation by going to the right way to worship. When most women would have been gathering together in the morning at the well, she comes alone at midday because she has this horrible reputation in town. She lived in sin, sin that she loved more than the Savior who was right in front of her because she did not yet believe that Jesus pursues sinners like her with such amazing blessings. But she must believe And so must you. A divine appointment, a divine rebuke, a divine instruction, a divine confrontation. Notice fifth, a divine encounter. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says, put your understanding to work by placing your trust in what I'm telling you. And what I'm telling you is not simply to be considered. It is to be believed. And when it is believed, it leads to a changed life. When you rightly believe, you change your life. And when your life isn't changed, you don't rightly believe. We're all aware of the history, and Jesus was well aware of the history, too, of the Jews and the Samaritans, of Jacob in the field, of the field in the well. Jesus says the debate over the proper place to worship is coming to an end. Jesus says all of this points to something greater. Marriage points to something greater. The temple points to something greater. The place of worship points to something greater. All of it points to something greater that she does not yet understand. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Jesus is telling us that the history of the Jews signifies and points forward to a reality that finds its fulfillment and something that he brings to be about, that he actualizes and realizes and inaugurates a new covenant. While the Israelites were instructed to worship on a certain mountain, And to do that in a certain manner, during a certain time period, all of that is coming to an end. And a new time and a new hour is coming. It's coming when the worship of God was no longer be confined to a particular place or a specific people or a particular region of the world. And he teaches us about this as he is very clear and clarifies that everybody worships. Everybody worships. But not everybody worships with understanding. Something that the novelist David Foster Wallace understood well when he wrote, Everybody worships because, quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will always feel weak and afraid, and you will always need more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Everybody worships. Friends, you're here, and you're worshiping something this morning, just like that woman on that day. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something that you do not know. You don't know why, and you don't know who, but you are worshiping. But Jesus says a change in redemptive history has taken place. God had chosen the Israelites to be his agents to the world, and now the purpose of that choice was clearly seen in that salvation would come from their line in lineage. Salvation is, verse 22, from the Jews. God's salvation is rooted in history. God began that work in the garden in Genesis 3, and he continues that work all the way up to this very moment. Salvation was coming from the Jews. And who is the Jew standing before this woman at this very moment? Jesus, the King of the Jews, the agent of the Father, the giver of living water, the way of salvation. He is life and, verse 22, 42, the Savior of the world. But Jesus did not stop there. It's coming and it's now here. And careful readers noticed it as they saw the juxtaposition between two hours. Jesus said in verse 21, it is coming. And now in verse 23, it is here. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus reveals an understanding of God's timetable for salvation. The hour that was coming is now here. The hour is now here because Jesus is here. The hour has arrived because Jesus has condescended to take on flesh. He is saying that he is here and a new hour has arrived. A new covenant has begun. Everything is different because of Jesus, because of his life and his coming death. And his coming resurrection and his coming ascension. And because of Jesus, no longer will true worshipers be among one ethnicity or a particular people. They will be drawn from all types of people, every tribe, every tongue, every language. All who profess faith in the Lord Jesus will be true worshipers. And they will worship the Father in spirit and truth together. Jesus teaches us that the worship of God is not defined by an experience. It's not a result of human creativity or ingenuity. Human beings do not worship the true God any other way than the way that God has revealed that he should be worshipped in truth. Which is why the emphasis in the passage is on truth. The foundation of worship is the truth of God. It's the result of the Spirit's work in the Christian's heart. It is a result of the truth of God about the Son of God being revealed in the Word of God. True worship is truly authentic. To worship in spirit and in truth must be the goal of our thoughts and hearts and mind. The Father, Jesus says, 
is seeking those types of people to worship him. And who are the people that the Father seeks? They are the true worshipers who cling to the truth of God by the Spirit of God and realize that Jesus is the Christ of God and therefore worship him rightly. And who is God? Verse 24, God is Spirit. The Bible says God is Spirit. And the Second London Confession helps us understand the only true and living God when it says this. God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. God has no body. God is spirit. But Jesus is God, here in the flesh. And once again, we see in John's gospel that those who worship God must worship the true God who is clearly seen and revealed in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The woman had heard great truths like this before. Probably like many of you in this room. You've sat through sermons like this before and you've heard great truths. And her response to Jesus gives evidence that she's heard truths like this. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Now I can have the conversation again. I don't have to talk about the repentance. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Notice how over the course of her interaction with Jesus in this conversation, she has been coming to a clearer understanding of the truth. Who are you a Jew? Verse 9. Are you greater than Jacob? Verse 12. I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 19. You kind of remind me of the Messiah, verse 25. And notice what Jesus says, verse 26. I, who speak to you, am he. Friends, the one who pursues sinners with amazing blessings is himself the Messiah, the Christ of God. Do you believe that? He is the Messiah, the anointed one, who brings amazing blessings to all kinds of sinners, Samaritans as well as Jews, men as well as women, those who seem to have it all together in this life and those who are literally just falling apart. And he does it by doing something for them that they cannot do for themselves, by dying of thirst so that they can have living water. If you have your Bible, I need you to turn with me to the end of John's Gospel, John 19. I need you to turn with me to John 19 to see how the thirst-quenching bridegroom brings amazing blessings to his people. John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All the way at the end of his gospel narrative, John tells us that Jesus dies of thirst to satisfy the thirst of people like the Samaritan woman. And in so doing, he teaches us from new birth in John 3 to living water in John 4. From a moral Jewish man in John 3 to an immoral Samaritan woman in John 4. That Jesus pursues sinners with amazing blessings. 
And what is the amazing blessing that Jesus Christ pursues sinners with in John 4? John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you like to drive toward the city like so many do as you're driving toward Philly, you can actually drive along a beautiful scenic route called the Schuylkill River, uh, River Trail. And as you do, one of the things that you'll see if you're paying attention as you drive, there are all of these different fountains that just kind of line the trail on the way into Philadelphia. And if you've ever been particularly curious when you're coming near Lemon Hill, you would find one fountain specifically with an inscription over the top of it. Everyone who drinks of this fountain will thirst again. All of the water fountains in all of the city of Philadelphia cannot satisfy the thirst of one person. So John tells us that Jesus died, that they could drink living water by dying the death that they deserve to die as their substitute on the cross, by giving them his righteousness so that they could approach the fount with living water, so that they might be recipients of life, and not just life, eternal life, so that they might have hope to live, and not just hope to live, but joy, blessed abundance forevermore, so that all of the shame would fall to the side, so that they could approach God in confidence and no longer hide behind questions that they can mount up to defend themselves and come to God in worship, in spirit, and in truth. Brothers and sisters, you want satisfaction, joy, Hope, life, peace, security. Come drink deeply from the water that Jesus provides. He died of thirst so that you would never go thirsty again. So that you would not have to pine and yearn for the non-satisfying, unpleasing things the world has to offer. You wonder why we get to every Christmas and we always have a new list? Because nothing in this world satisfies. You've never had a gift that actually made you happy. You've never had anything that quenched all of your yearning in this life. And that tells us what this text teaches us to be true. That Jesus alone satisfies. You're looking for it. You're looking for it today. You long for it somewhere. You think someone will give it to you. You think something will give it to you. But it will not give it to you. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Throw it off and believe in this Christ. Hope in this Christ. And drink deeply. Drink deeply and be satisfied. And know that you will be satisfied for all of eternity. And you can do that right now. It's so unbelievably simple in John's gospel. Repent. Turn away. Believe. Trust. Run from the sin. Put all of your hope in Christ. And that's exactly what the woman does, isn't it? Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Will you? 
Will you leave everything that you thought was going to bring satisfaction? She leaves the very thing that was going to sustain her life because she had found it. Friends, if you want to learn more about it, I'd love to talk to you about it today. I'll be at that tunnel following the service. There'll be pastors at every door. But you can do it right now in your seat. You can walk away from it all and trust in the one who will satisfy. This never will. And this will every single time. Because Jesus pursues sinners like you and like me with amazing blessings. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would believe, help our unbelief. May we believe that the gospel of Christ alone satisfies. May we believe that Jesus is the Christ of God and that he died for us. May we believe that what he offers us will quench and satisfy more deeply than anything we have or could attain or receive this side of eternity. May we believe and help our unbelief. Conquer it now, we pray. And we ask all of this in the name of our mighty, merciful God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?